This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 51st episode of The Quarter Bin, I'm looking at the books I got at Free Comic Book Day this year, because as my listeners are keenly aware, free is less than 25 cents. As a matter of fact, I've made a proclamation that the first Saturday in May shall henceforth be the official national holiday of the Quarter Bin Podcast. But first, a little feedback about the beginning of our quest to cover Doom 2099. Shlomo joined me in my Doom fandom. For him, he's been a Doom man since the original Secret Wars. But this title just never worked for him. I didn't at all care about the Tiger Wild character. He just seemed silly. Not just his name, but his look. The cover was impressive, but I'm just not sure if Pat Broderick was the most ideal artist for this book. I'm not with you on the Broderick comment, Shlomo, but I will definitely pay more critical attention to the art as the series goes on. On Tiger Wild, yes. Total agreement. Kyle Benning, the Metropolis Kid, was effusive in his praise, mostly for the issue, but a little bit for the podcast episode, too. Incredible coverage! But what can you expect for a series featuring Doom? I can't wait for future episodes. I'm going to have to dig out my Doom 2099 issues and binge-read in anticipation. By binge-read, Kyle, I hope you mean two issues every ten episodes. Because that's going to be our pace. Chris, from Mythmaking ETC, admitted that he has never read any 2099 issues, but then added, I enjoyed hearing about this from a big fan. Daniel Butcher and Robert Ward also commented on the Facebook post for this episode, and thanks go out to them. Iowa's Joe Crawford commented about this issue and the next one, too. On Doom 2099, he admitted to only ever reading two issues from very late in the run, 42, and the last issue, 44. I enjoyed one and found the other one impenetrable. I will gladly now revisit the series with the podcast. There are a few clunkers in the early issues, especially when the focus is on the 2099 version of the internet. Painful. But overall, there are many more good issues than not-so-good issues. Joe also commented on the as of then, upcoming episode 50. One last note. I'm excited slash nervous about the Turok coverage. I was a big fan at the time. I hold in my hand my issue to read today. Hopefully the memory doesn't cheat too much this time. Well, as you've by now heard, I think we were all surprised by how above average that book was. Its legacy is clearly tarnished by what came after, which is a bit of a shame, as the book itself was was, was okay. It was, it, was, it was fine. The rest of the feedback for the Turok issue and the related business discussion we got into will all be in next episode. So thanks a lot for this feedback, everyone. 
Now, on to Free Comic Book Day 2015, and let me start just by talking a little bit about my history with Free Comic Book Day. In general, I don't go to comic book stores very often. The store near my campus, in the ballpark, has the one-week quarter bin sales four times a year. Between getting to that sale two or three times, along with a few drop-ins, maybe, and I might hit that store a half dozen times at the most in a year, there is another store closer to where I live, Capital City Comics, that I've, again, hit maybe two or three times, usually around Christmas or Emily's birthday. Don't tell her. This is actually where she has been picking up our Convergence books, with the two of us splitting the costs. And I'm not going to count my visits to half-price books every month or so, as the comic section are just really small parts of those stores. Most of the reading I do is my old comic books or trades from the library, or recently, gifts from awesome listeners. (laughs) Between that and trades from the library as likely as anything to buy off eBay or my comic shop as anywhere else. I just I just don't visit comic shops very often. Now, as, as Emily and I have mentioned regularly on this network, when the new 52 started, we began to regularly purchase All-Star Western and Demon Knights. And even though, again, em- Emily and I split the cost of these books, she did the actual purchasing, as there was a very good comic shop in the town where she was in college, Hobby Central. Her final exam week was always over that first week in May, so she didn't always get out the free comic book day in all of the four years that she was there, but she did hit it a few times, and, and by then I was getting to the quarter bins pretty, pretty regularly, so I loved whatever free stuff you know she, she brought in. Uh, I, I mentioned the comic store near my place of work, near my university, in the ballpark. That store does not participate in free comic book day, and that's just fine by me. I'd rather have a few dozen 25-cent boxes four weeks out of the year than have free comics one day of the year, Uh, especially when the free comic book day stuff is available at so many other places. Now, last year, Emily ended up going back to campus to visit a couple buddies who were still there, you know, a year behind her, to give them a study break during final exams and all that, and she did hit her old store and grabbed the books at Free Comic Book Day last year that I covered way back in episode 26. But this year, the way the schedule fell, the way the calendar hit, I realized that Emily was going to be out of town for Free Comic Book Day 2015. And for the sake of you lovely listeners of this podcast, I realized I would have to brave the shops myself. That's right, I said shops. Well, that was the plan. Like I said, Emily graduated two years back now, and and even though she has been back to campus in that town a number of times, I have not. But I remember that there was an awesome restaurant there, a 50s-style diner-type place, burgers and fries, but the best thing they have is an item whose name I suspect will only be meaningful to Midwesterners, and perhaps only to Ohioans. Buckeye Shake. So the plan was to start my free comic book day back in Emily's old stomping grounds for free comics, a burger, some fries, and a Buckeye shake. So, on the way there, I pulled off the highway to gas up my car and make a quick run to the grocery store. And this is the part of the town where my wife works, where we go to church, where one of those half-price books locations is. And I knew there was a comic shop around there, 
but the last time I went in, maybe four or five years ago, it, it just wasn't much. And it's moved a couple times, or I don't even know, maybe it's closed and new ones have opened. And it was just always a little confusing, and I, I just wasn't planning on stopping by that store. But getting back on the highway, I saw a banner in a shopping center advertising Free Comic Book Day for World's Greatest Comics. And they were actually in a new location now, good parking, they were on the right side of the road for me, so... And they were open at 10.30 in the morning. So I figured, what the heck? I stopped by. Really nice store. Small footprint, so probably an affordable lease, I hope, for the owners. Nice employees. I chatted with one of the guys who works there who explained the process. Every customer could get four of the free comic book day issues. And there were really only six that I was at all interested in. So that was really no big deal. I quickly grabbed my top four and then spied on the floor, in a corner, a pair of 25-cent boxes. I know, it's kind of a superpower I have. What can I say? And I love that every store's quarter boxes are different. Of course, there were a lot of 90s books in there, like every quarter box. But this one also had some older books, books from the 70s, and some coverless comics, Archie's mostly. And I grabbed a few of those. The the one employee that I chatted to before assured me the coverless books that made their way into the cheap boxes, he double-checked every one to make sure that they had no missing pages. They were just missing covers. So between the free books and the 25-cent bins and then the overall sale they were having store-wide, I walked out of there with 14 books for which I spent less than $2. At that point, I decided to forego the longer trip up to Emily's old store, and I would miss the Buckeye Shake. But I headed straight for Capital City Comics, which was on the way home. I'd already picked up my top four books. I was pretty satisfied. So, swung by Cap City, and the line was out the door and probably 25 people long in the parking lot. And I figured I already had my top books, and I just headed home. Now, later in the day, I saw a post from Little Russell Burbage, noted podcast listener and dweller in the same fair city as I. And he said he had the exact same experience at Cap City. He drove by, saw the line, and moved on. I think it's fair to say that I've talked enough about the process of Free Comic Book Day 2015. Uh, Let me actually talk about the books I nabbed. And like I said, I got four books. I'm going to briefly review each one in alphabetical order so as to not play favorites. First up, the all-new, all-different Avengers. We start with a 10-page adventure story written by Mark Wade, with art by Mahmoud Asrar. This is a preview story for a series coming out in the fall. I guess it'll come out in the ashes of Secret Wars. The team of Avengers has an old guard of Iron Man, Vision, Sam Wilson as Captain America, and Lady Thor, which I know is not her actual character name, but that's just for clarity's sake. And then there's basically a junior auxiliary of the Miles Morales Spider-Man, Young Nova, and Ms. Marvel. They're actually referred to as the Pups at one point. What we basically have in these ten issues is a one-scene fight, with the team taking down the radioactive man and a magical green dragon, who are making a scene inside the vault of a Federal Reserve Bank. Sam is in charge, taking his Captain America leadership role seriously. 
things don't go well inside the vault, and the pups are discouraged, questioning what they could have done differently. And Sam gives them a talking to in the debrief, why they chose to save one man at the risk of letting the mystical dragon escape. Did any of you stop to ask yourselves how many more lives you were putting at risk? No? Silence from the three pups. Good. Then we've recruited wisely. Welcome to the team. The writing in this one was very sharp. There was a a nice bit about the name Avengers with Iron Man explaining to Nova that they actually don't do a lot of avenging in the strict technical sense of that word. There's another point where Miles asks Nova exactly what his power is, 2020 hindsight, to which Ms. Marvel replies, mine is trying to stay focused. Miles also got a funny line after he, as he puts it, splorts out all the webbing I've got as one big blanket. I can expense this, right? And after recently reading the first trade of Kamala Khan as Miss Marvel, I am all in on her. Her uniform, her attitude, her personality. So that was a a pretty fun intro, issue zero type of story. The issue then moves into another 10-page preview story, this one for The Uncanny Inhumans, written by Charles Soule with art by Brandon Peterson. And we're in India at a big Bollywood premiere, and a strange gas cloud envelops the event, causing some of the people to develop strange new powers. Hydra arrives quickly to acquire these newly powered people, but they are quickly stopped by a team that includes Human Torch and a purple-clad woman with wild, wild red hair. Who dares? asks the Hydra leader. The wild-haired woman grabs the Hydra leader for a brief chat. I am Queen Medusa. Inhumans, old or new, are my people. When my people are attacked, I dare, and I always will. Afterwards, Johnny and Medusa talk about this mysterious cloud that is kind of making new Inhumans every day around the world. And then Johnny and Medusa get majorly kissy-kissy at the end of the story, and I am left to wonder if Black Bolt is around in this version of the Marvel U. Another fine intro story, you know, a, a, again, an, an issue zero, if you will. This, this one was more plot-focused than the Avengers one, which is mostly about introducing the characters and showing relationships. Here we get backstory for the Uncanny Inhumans title, also coming in the fall. It's hard to know which of these characters beyond, I assume, Johnny and Medusa, will be core parts of that book. The issue ends with a three-page preview for an upcoming series based on James Patterson's series of Maximum Ride novels. I skipped it. So next up, number two, was Captain Canuck, who, by the way, celebrates his 40th birthday this year. And this one was kind of weird. It wasn't really a comic story, only sort of? Well, let me try to explain. In terms of the preview parts, we only get four pages of a story, and I guess it's sort of a special ops team. And boy, is this a perfectly modern 21st century, totally diverse team. Women, people of color, everyone is represented. The story itself, the four pages of it that were here, was a generic extraction and rescue thing. Nothing special, and the dialogue was not nearly as natural as the Avengers story. We then get a six-page review of the history of Captain Canuck, a summary of the 14 issues published in the mid-to-late 70s through 1981. 
And there have been a few dozen issues published since then, and specials and miniseries, that sort of thing. But I don't know why you would spend six pages retelling these old stories when you could have used that real estate to try to sell the current version of the character. It just did not make any sense to me from a selling perspective, a, a marketing perspective. And I should say that this one really is a preview comic, as an all-new Captain Canuck title is coming out at the end of May. They spend the last seven pages doing very nice entries on each of the seven members of the team. Now, that made sense, but I still can't get over this choice to spend so much time on ancient history of the title when you're trying to sell the all-new version of the title. Not to ignore the past here in the captain's 40th anniversary year, but maybe give us seven pages, eight pages of new story to entice us, and only two pages, maybe three pages of past history. Just that that balance seemed out of whack. I just think there was a real missed opportunity on this one. Well, that's two of the four books I got at Free Comic Book Day this year. Now, let me take a break here, drop in a few promos, and come back with, no spoilers, my two favorite books from this year's Free Comic Book Day. Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. For Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Balance stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. Kalabak, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dittrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick... Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. And we're back. 
Next up, again going alphabetically, is Doctor Who. I've read three trades of the prior iteration of the Doctor Who comics and have reviewed them over at my blog, Alan's Eyes and Ears, at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com. Those were published by IDW, and more often than not written by Tony Moore, and were usually pretty good. About a year ago, Titan Comics took over the license, and I was a little worried. I liked the plans that they announced, which was to do ongoings for each of the last three Doctors, 10, 11, and 12. They also indicated that they would be creating new characters, new companions for some of the Doctors. All that sounded interesting, but none of the trades have hit the public library yet, so I haven't read any of them yet. Well, until now, that is, because what we have here is three separate, complete stories, one each featuring those three Doctors. I just loved this format. This, to me, is what a free comic book day should be like. So let me go through the three stories, each one with six pages. We start with the Twelfth Doctor story, The Body Electric, written by George Mann, with art by Mariano La Claustra. Twelve and Clara land in the quartz wastes of Asmoray, a stunning natural phenomenon. The entire planet is a ball of quartz wrapped around a copper core. The Doctor explains it's like a crystal radio set, a reference that goes totally over Clara's young person head. The supposedly uninhabited planet is not quite as uninhabited as Twelve had promised. A man on a hovercraft swoops in to pick them up to keep them safe, as the quartz that his company has been mining seems to be fighting back. The planet has been forming lightning balls and electrocuting the workers who have been doing the harvesting. The doctor explains that there are beings in the quartz, in the lightning, and they just want their planet back. As is so often the case with a Doctor Who story, they're only attacking because they're being attacked. And it falls to Clara to flip the switch to shut down the harvesters and save the world. A brief story, but a full story. A beginning, a middle, and an end. With any licensed property, the art can be distracting because it's always judged against how the characters actually look on the screen. And as always, there were some inconsistencies there, but overall the art was fine. That comment actually goes for all the stories in the issue. Moments of wonkiness in the art, where they didn't quite get the model right, but overall, pretty good. We then move to a story of the 11th Doctor, Give Free or Die, written by Al Ewing and Rob Williams, with art by Simon Fraser. This story features newly created companions Alice, a former library worker, and therefore Emily's favorite character ever, and Jones, a former skiffle musician, and Ark, a shapeshifter with a backstory that is longer than we need for right now. This story goes for the wacky and the metatextual, and generally succeeds. There's a mob scene at a London comic book store called Prohibited Sphere. It seems that all of the good English folk have been hypnotized by free comics and free books and free audiobooks. Actually, it's only one book, The Story of Zagnar. But the Doctor quickly deduces what is going on. Mind control of a planet through a narrative virus given away for free. People always fall for free stuff. 
The mad crowd threatens to pulp Eleven, so he and his companions skedaddle off to the TARDIS. By reversing the polarity... No, really, he actually reverses the polarity. They are able to pull all of the text into the shapeshifter, emptying out the words from the offending books. It turns out that the evil alien, underneath it all, is the most pathetic, pitiful creature in the universe. A writer. This one just seemed like a classic sci-fi story to me again. We're in, we're out, story, resolution, and a funny punchline. I totally enjoyed this one, including the digs at comic fans. I got the feeling that they were incredibly good-natured and not really meant to be criticisms. We then move to the last story, the Tenth Doctor story, Londro Room of Doom, written by Nick Abadzis with art by Eleonora Carlini. We have another original companion here, Gabby Gonzalez, who has worked in her family's laundromat and restaurant, which is actually an important plot point to the story. The pair arrive in the TARDIS covered in mud, which can happen when you visit the planet Quampeting. You see, the TARDIS overshot the dry seasons and landed right in monsoon time. But this is the perfect time for Ten to show Gabby how the TARDIS laundry system works. I know a thing or two about laundry, Doctor. There's no way you'll ever get this shirt clean. So they walk through the TARDIS on and on and on and on, passing the Doctor's wardrobe room and finally finding the Laundro D-Mat. Ten sends Gabby, or as he calls her, Grumpy Locks, to the spa room to clean up, and afterwards they do their laundry. The system will dematerialize and analyze our clothes, separate out the dirt molecules, and then put our duds back together again. Which might actually explain Seven's outfit, if you know what I'm saying. Well, the problem is that the dirt gets rematerialized and repurposed, theoretically as compost for the garden next to the cloisters. But as they wander through the wardrobe room, and Gabby points out a few of the more... um, hideous outfits that the doctor used to wear. They are accosted by a big old muck monster. It's the dirt from their outfits. Ten pats down a shirt for a Sonic, but unfortunately it was in his coat pocket, meaning the muck monster has the Sonic. See, the problem was the Sonic shorted out the laundro machine. But the doctor saves the day, of course, and the muck disapparates. And then the two retrieve their clothes from the laundro, only to find out that the flowers from her blouse are now on his suit jacket, and she has a boring pinstripe top. Again, the humor worked for me in this one, and the dialogue between Ten and this companion I'd never seen before was strong. It really gave a good sense of their relationship. So again, six pages, with a setup, with a problem, with a resolution, and a funny denouement. Again, I loved the fact that this gave us three complete stories, not sneak peeks or issue zeros, but three complete standalone stories that do the marketing work of selling the three titles. Because each of these three Doctors has an ongoing series from Titan. So again, I think in both delivering entertainment and doing the sales and marketing job, this one really threaded that needle and I think accomplished both of those missions. 
And that brings us lastly to Steampunk Goldilocks from something called Antarctic Press, which, from what I can tell, specializes in steampunk-themed comic stories. Along with Doctor Who, this was the one I was looking forward to the most. I'm a fan of the steampunk aesthetic, and I've liked some fairy tale retelling. So, again, sort of custom-made for things that, that have worked for me before. The story and art in this one were by Rod Espinosa. The art may be a bit over the top for some on this one, I totally admit, as it lands somewhere between cartoony and manga. But the story itself starts with Goldilocks and Miss Muffet getting a stern talking to from their witchy mother about the mess they've made in the house, but they are too busy snacking on Tripleberry tarts to worry about that. But when Mom tells them that their employer has called on the crystal ball, they are ready to go off on their next adventure slash assignment. Their mission is to retrieve the icon called the Golden Bear from a secure bunker, which happens to be a house in which three bears live. So the girls just hop in their tank and head off. I'm going to repeat that last sentence, just in case you missed it. So the girls hop in their tank and head off. Little Miss Muffet runs ops from inside the tank while Goldilocks infiltrates the abode. There are some wonderful steampunky typewriter and gear-based design elements here, as well as a pretty cool remote element analyzer device thing, in addition to their tank. Oh, shoot, I may not have mentioned this, but the girls have a tank! Well, unfortunately, once inside, Goldilocks is tempted by the best porridge she has ever smelled. Surprisingly, one was a little too hot, and then the next one gave her a brain freeze, and then she found one that was, you know, just right. She did find the golden bear icon, and is able to retrieve it, and she celebrates with some more of that just-right porridge, which totally wears her out. And she tries each of the beds for a nap, but, well, you know. Anyway, Muffet's radar device notes the approach of the three bears, and it may be too late for Goldilocks until their witchy mom arrives, grabs her girls by their earlobes, and drags them out of there, grounding them for a month. The end. Probably the flat-out funnest story of the lot, and it was nice to read a full-length one-and-done adventure in at least one of the free comic book day offerings that I nabbed. So the verdict on free comic book day 2015... Well, let's see, it was comics, and they were free. What is not to like about that equation? I also bought another ten cheap books that went straight into the database for the podcast, so it was a win all the way around, except for the lack of a Buckeye shake. Anyway, in terms of ranking the four issues, I have to put the Doctor Who book at the top of the pile. Three complete stories, all of them fun, and one of them actively mocking free comic book day. Loved it. Second, Steampunk Goldilocks. Again, a comic with a full story. And again, for me, the art stayed just far enough away from straight manga to work for me. And I know that is not going to work for some readers. And like I said, I was inclined to enjoy the comic, and I really did. Oh, did I mention the girls had a tank? 
Then third, still a solidly intriguing book, was The Avengers. A fun team, a fun dynamic, and I like both the young version of Nova and Kamala Khan as Ms. Marvel. When this one comes out in the fall, I'm definitely going to be listening to reviews, just to see if it's one I want to eventually check out in trades. And then fourth, Captain Canuck. It just didn't take advantage of the opportunity that a free comic book day book offers. So this one was clearly the weakest of the bunch. Not bad. I just didn't get what it was trying to do. But all four of them were well worth, you know, free. That wraps up my coverage of free comic book day 2015, bringing episode 51 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. I saw a lot of Facebook posts for listeners about free comic book day events on May 2nd, and I'd love to hear some feedback specifically about what you guys picked up, what you liked, what you didn't like, etc. In episode 52, we'll be looking at a book selected by listeners of this show, or at least likers of the Facebook page. I'll explain that process next episode when we cover Fantastic Four Annual 20, Hail Doom. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, or of your experiences with Free Comic Book Day 2015, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarterback. Music for this episode was by the band Comrades, whose recordings you can find by going to the website for their label, Blood and Ink Records. Bloodandinkrecords.com. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at Relatively Geeky Podcast. .blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.